would encourage people to develop skills in their areas where they can execute and complete a project or do something timely. And then the other aspect is the integrity to be able to carry through on what you say you're going to do. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast brought to you by Inveris. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review on iTunes. When you do that, it helps other people find the show. And I love reading these on air. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 60-second survey. All right. I'm sitting here this afternoon with Jeffrey Whittle, Managing Partner and Global Head of Energy and Natural Resources Industry Sector at Womble, Bond, and Dickinson. How are you, Jeffrey? Doing well. Thank you. Good, good. Let's talk about how you got started in your career. Well, I'm a uh, technology attorney and an energy attorney at heart. And so I have an electrical engineering background and started my career with Hewlett Packard with HP coming out of undergraduate school at Vanderbilt University. And then I, after three years working with Hewlett Packard and their technology component groups, I went back and got a graduate MBA and Juris Doctorate degree, law degree. Mm hmm had a strong interest in intellectual property. So I moved into the intellectual property sector, so to say, and have been practicing in uh, intellectual property and doing deals and transaction in the technology space for over 30 years now. Oh, wow. It's 20 years. I focus more on the energy space and do national and international deals on uh, global cross-border transactions. Oh, excellent. So what made you go, I want to be an attorney? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have colleagues and uh, family members that were like, oh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go study environmental science and geology and then went, mm, no, nah, I'm just, I'm going to go be a lawyer now. Well, what really intrigued me about law was the reading and understanding and making arguments and presenting and representing clients in different ways. I didn't know going back into law school that I would lean towards to intellectual property. I just know that I like the presentation and the speaking and the opportunity to interface with potential clients and actual clients at different levels. And so that intrigued me. I enjoy meeting people and meeting new people. Law allowed me to do that in terms of meeting clients. And I just had that kind of intrigue towards that direction. My grandfather was an attorney. I was the first attorney in our family direct brothers and sisters. Now I have a younger brother who's an attorney as well, too. Oh, so it's just in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, my father and mother weren't attorneys, but I so kind of skipped a generation there. But we were the first brothers that got degrees in our kind of sibling area. So that yeah. intrigued me to do something different, do something that was involved in as a government official of sorts, you know, in courts and things like that. So that all yeah. fascinated me. Yeah. So for those that don't know what intellectual property is, could you explain that? 
Yes, it's really, in shorthand, a lot of listeners will have heard of patents and trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets. All of that is intellectual property. It's the capturing of intangible property versus the physical property that has value and is able to be traded and swapped and protected and enforced at different levels. Patents and trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets are manifestations of that, things that go on in our head, creativity, innovation, new developments, those type of things that form intellectual property. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Now, how does that pertain to oil and gas? Wow. Oil and gas is replete with intellectual property. Oil and gas from the upstream, midstream, downstream, complete, laced with intellectual property and technology. So anywhere there's a technology play, there's intellectual property. Anywhere where there's branding in the, for example, the downstream distribution side, your retail gasoline stations all have branding. That's your trademarks. Everything around that is intellectual property around the branding. Copyrights come arises from the papers and other creative works. A little less in the oil and gas industry, but it definitely is there. Books people write and right. papers they present, magazines, journals, all that are protected by copyrights. Trade secrets arise because the oil and gas companies keep a lot of information confidential, wisely so in many cases. And your formulas for chemical compositions is a good example. Right. I was just thinking about fracking. There's a lot of that. Yes, absolutely. Definitely in the fluids that they use for downhole, a lot of companies keep that as a confidential trade secret information, that composition, that fluid. Right, right. Explain exactly what you do now. We've already gone through your career and how we got to now. So if you wouldn't mind going through that. Yeah, I'm a global head of the energy and natural resource sector for Wombo Bond Dickinson. And so in this role, I not only supervise and work with attorneys and team members across our offices and, and globally to help develop strategies, but also as a practicing attorney, I'm a deal attorney at heart. So I do transactions you know, between companies. When a company wants to acquire another company, many times they have assets that are oil or gas fields. They have mm-hmm. oil and gas patents. They have oil and gas technology that they've developed and somebody wants to acquire that company or the technology, either one separately, I help them do that acquisition or selling on the sales side. I also help transfer or license technology. So if they have patents or trade secrets or information they want to transfer to another company, I help do the deals and negotiations and papers related to transferring or licensing that to allow someone else to use it. Right. Either in the same space or a related space where that technology is being developed. As you can imagine, there's been an explosion in the kind of the oil and gas and the transition from oil and gas to biofuels and yeah. the renewable diesels and all that type of technology, storage, carbon capture. I, I help clients protect it and I help them transfer it and license and it increases the value of their company in terms of that protection. So I'm at a harder deal person. When necessary, we have to enforce patents or enforce contracts as the case may be. And so we have to go to court and represent clients in court where those rights have been either infringed or contracts been breached or a deal has gone awry. We have to help clients either defend or protect as the case may be against those issues. Does that occur often? 
It does, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm kind of like, well, I don't really get to hear about these types of things. Yeah, we actually are both in court a lot. Okay. Both in terms of we have, you know, kind of deep benches or teams that help clients in those instances. And in a patent case, for example, it can be a single patent or it can be multiple patents. And those cases are fought in U.S. federal district court. And then they're also brought actions in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And so those cases can be going on at the same time in a patent case. In a breach of contract case, they can be brought either in state or federal court to represent clients in both situations. Typically, if it's the two parties are outside of a single state, then it usually goes into federal court. But if they're in the same state, sometimes they can bring the action and keep the action in state court. We represent clients on those contract breaches and different issues that arise, you know, if misappropriation of trade secret or a breach of a certain clause in agreement or somebody failed to pay, you know, somebody else money, all those type of actions. And we do that quite a bit, actually. Okay. Okay. And that was going to be my next question. Where do most of your cases occur? And it's federal versus state. Yeah. That's correct. Federal. The hotbeds for patent litigation are the Western and Eastern Districts of Texas, quite a bit in the Southern District of Texas, U.S. District Courts, the Northern and Central Districts of California, and also the District of Delaware and the Southern District of New York. Those are probably the top four or five different hotbeds in terms of where patent cases are brought. In the commercial contract disputes, those are often brought where the parties are located. So because Houston is a big oil and gas hub, a lot of cases are brought here in the Southern District of Texas, the federal U.S. Interesting. District. Interesting. I kind of thought everything would probably mostly be in Delaware because that's where a lot of people get their company names, right? Right. Okay. That's interesting. You can get district, a jurisdiction over them, but they like the courts in Texas and other parts of the country where the parties are located. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really blame them, too, because, I mean, Houston, oil and gas, that just makes sense in my head. So, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's kind of go over leadership. So you said you like talking to people and conversing and fighting for them. And I would imagine you have people under you that help you do all of these things. So, yeah. So what is leadership to you, Jeffrey? Well, leadership, is, I think of it as serving others in a way that, that collectively reach strategic goals. Mm-hmm. I think what you're trying to do is work as a team and somebody needs to help pull that team and work together and guide that team, coach the team. But sometimes it's a little more than coaching. I don't like the coaching term per se, because sometimes people have bad images of coaches you know, screaming on the sideline. Mom and dad screaming at you because they're your coach in softball. <laughs> exactly. I'm much more of a come alongside somebody, you know, calm them down and get them focused on moving the deal or the practice or the case or the team or the project forward in an effective way that benefits them and benefits the team and the firm as a whole if it's within the firm. So, Sometimes it's working with a client, and so it's really the bottom line there is to serve the client in a way that's really impactful and valuable to the client. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you have an example of a time that maybe you didn't make the right decision as a leader? Mm. I think every leader has one. Yeah, I can think of times when I've approached somebody about an issue and 
stepping back and thinking about the issue more, thinking about how that person might either perceive my reaction or perceive a team reaction, often kind of said what's on my mind right away without pausing and thinking about it more. <laughs> we have leaders tend to do that sometimes because one, sometimes we like to hear ourselves talk, but other times we, <laughs> we want to kind of show what we know. And I don't think that's always the goal. For me, I've learned that it's often better to come alongside somebody and go, hmm, that's a really difficult problem. Instead of me jumping in with a conclusion or criticism or something like that and say, I can empathize with that and say, I'm very interested in how you're going to figure that out and let them go try to wrestle through how they're going to figure that out or what they're going to say or what they're going to do in that situation rather than me always jumping in with an answer. I've learned that the hard way, as you mentioned many times, without stepping back and pausing. Because if I encourage that, I've found that it makes that person a better leader in the end. It makes them a better professional or whatever role they have. It encourages them and helps them to do their job better because they learn. It forces them to help think through it better and then come up with solutions. And the beauty behind that is they often come up with things I wouldn't have thought of and very creative things and I can cheer them on in those instances. That's really a wonderful thing too as well because I, I learned through the process as well. Right. I guess you would have to be pretty creative in your situation, right? Yes, yes, yes. Clients did a lot of difficult situations as you can imagine and both in terms of, you know, when they've got issues with the government, when they've got issues with their competitors, when they've got internal issues, they can have you know, disputes, they can have difficult situations, being creative and coming up with solutions that satisfy many parties is really rewarding in that sense. But you have to be creative. And I can think of instances where a client was uh, accused of some environmental protection agency violation in the oil and gas space. We came up with a solution, for example, we brainstormed with them, said, yeah, that's a problem. I can see why the EPA, they're making you a target case. Nobody else, look over there, they're not complaining about them, but you're a target case. And they're going to try to make a case against you or instance against you. We came up with the idea that develop their own solution to the problem and then protect that with patents or other ways. And then go to the EPA and say, hey, EPA, here's our solution. Don't you like this solution in terms of how we solve that problem? Right. And the EPA was ecstatic over it. Why? Because it solved the real problem, which was the damage to the environment. And then yeah. the client said, look, we'll take this solution and we will share it with the industry under a license-free kind of deal so that the environment is improved as a result. And all of us as oil and gas companies can benefit from it and move forward. And the EPA was extremely pleased with that, dropped any allegations against them. And the company was happy. The industry is happy because it you know, solved the problem for them as well, too, and reduced the risk that the EPA would come after them. So they all did this cleanup action and solved the problem and came up with solutions so it wouldn't happen again. And that's your example of we have to be creative. We have to come up with solutions and help clients come up with solutions that benefit all the parties involved in that instance. Well, any day that the EPA is happy is a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that from experience, having to deal with uh, what is it, District 6. There's some grumpy folks. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, but yeah. 
Yeah. So what's your favorite part about being a leader? I like to see people mentored and developed and succeed. That's really it's hard to explain, but I just get a lot of intrinsic satisfaction and joy there. Is it more of a fulfillment thing? Yes, it's a fulfillment. I guess that's part of it. Yes. So it's when I see somebody, it really clicks with somebody or somebody really blossoms and their skills come together and it's really rewarding. I received a couple of years ago, I received a, what's known as a Frank Barnes Award for mentorship. And that reward just meant a lot to me for that reason, just being able to invest and develop other people and see other people succeed. And that, you know, I'm not big on getting awards per se, but it just meant that there were people that really felt mentored out there and really valued that. And that really means a lot to me when I see them succeed in that way. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Isn't it fun whenever it's a surprise? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and it truly was a surprise to your point. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be, Jeffrey? I think I would encourage to be patient on leadership. I think it's something not to rush into, but develop and work into uh, skills over time. I Steve McCovey is a famous speaker that I've enjoyed reading and hearing speak. And he talks about trust. And I really believe that's a really, what I would call an intellectual capital, trust. And he describes it in two main ways. One is that somebody has the skills and ability to execute on something. And so that means I would encourage people to develop skills in their areas where they can execute and complete a project or do something timely. And then the other aspect is the integrity to be able to carry through on what you say you're going to do. That's what I would encourage others, leaders to develop and seek is both that way to develop skills and integrity so that trust or that intellectual capital is established with others, both on your team and both within your company or firm, and then also with your customers or clients, as the case may be, so that you follow through and execute on those things. We do a lot of deals and a lot of transactions, a lot of things based on those trust relationships. I've often heard when you go out to either make an investment in a company or, or buy a company, often you're investing in leadership. And that leadership that you're investing in, it's because people trust you to execute on your plan. Plans don't always go perfectly. So we have that integrity and that trust you know, those leaders know how to be flexible and move into ways to correct issues or correct mistakes or, you know, move forward more effectively or move into a market more effectively than perhaps they would do initially. They just have that character and that trust to be able to do that. And that's what I would encourage, you know, leadership and the audience to think about. Yeah. To develop trust in others. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actual intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Eneverest is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Eneverest has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Eneverest.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. Here's kind of a curveball, but how do you know someone isn't ready or 
meant to be a leader? Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's just a person doesn't desire to be. They step out and they say, I do not want to be, or I do not like that or want that. Even then, sometimes I often coach them to, what if you practice speaking more? You know, what if you went to one of the organizations that helps train you on speaking? And sometimes they light up and they say that could really help. But other times they are not meant to lead in that area. I really think that I'm a firm believer that they move someone into where their strengths are and let them try to blossom where those strengths are. Yeah affirm and recognize those strengths and show them where they have strengths. And it may not be with your company. It may not be with your firm, but in the end, it may be best for them. And they really thrive in those new roles wherever they are. And that's great because that's ultimately, I'm a firm believer and it'll come back to that mentoring or that coaching or that encouragement will come back to pay dividends, you know, at some point in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> If they're not meant to lead in that area or lead in there, maybe somewhere they may be meant to lead. For example, I'm not a musician and I can learn and people can lead me in music. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but I may be able to lead them in oil and gas areas or technology deals or those type of things. So as the case may be, you know, that people are, have a lot of talents and gifts and strengths and passions and we all benefit when they pursue them. Right, right. I assume you have read a lot. What book has influenced you the most? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be you know, kind of open and personal. I hope that's okay. But the Bible, just from a faith, is the book that influences me the most. In business, it's a book called Strategic Selling. And the Strategic Selling book is, I don't know if you're ever familiar with it, but it came out, and this will probably tell you my age started my career when the dinosaurs were still on <laughs> hence fossil fuels right <laughs> <laughs> it was released in 1985 and they've recently done an update revised and updated version but that was by robert miller and stephen hyman it made me think about strategy for the first time in my career because it was strategic selling and how do i meet or work with people at a strategic level to help achieve a negotiation or a position or a sell or relationship or something like that. And it really had an impact on me because I was always so linear before and what's in front of me and more operational and never thought about what's around the corner, what's coming up and looking down into the future just a little bit more from a strategic point of view. That book really influenced me the way I moved through my career and moved through leadership in a way that really thinks through and helps clients with strategy, helps, you know, firms help develop strategy for the firm. And funny enough, some of the people I enjoy meeting at other companies is their strategic officers. You know, they have chief strategy officers and things like that at the oil and gas companies. And I really enjoy meeting them because the strategy and things that they think through, they're looking down three, five years, you know, seven years, 10 years, where are we going to be? Where's our company going to be? Where's the industry going to be? What are some of the hiccups we could hit along the way? And how do we plan for that? It's just really fun for me. So you can point out all the holes. <laughs> <laughs> be like, well, I'm glad you thought of that. But as far as the law goes. Mm. Right, right. So, so that book really had a big influence on me, you can tell. Awesome. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of technology, what is your most used business tool? Wow. Definitely the mobile phone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. People panic when they don't have their phone. It's amazing how much information is on there and how much you can do on a mobile phone these days. So by far, that's the business tool I use the most. That and my laptop, of course. But Right. For all the things you can't do on your phone. (laughs) (laughs) So there's so many apps now and so many programs and things that really empower us to do our jobs faster and better. I laugh again. I touch my age by laugh because the I start practice. They were still we're still using typewriters, and we'd run to the mimeograph machine to make copies, and it was very complex and difficult. And oh, I remember typewriters. I used to have <laughs> one. <laughs> then we moved into the fax machine and all that. Oh man, the worst sound in the world. Yeah, the most emails and text and social media and all that. So boy, it's it's really changed over my career. Yeah, I, I guess think, so. I used to think, wondered how my parents did it with black and white televisions. <laughs> <laughs> my, kids, my kids don't know a time when they didn't have a cell phone, really, or a mobile phone. <laughs> it's oh, really amusing. It, yeah, that is amusing. Not to go too terribly off subject, but you mentioned black and white TV. I watched a couple of videos the other day, and this teacher was talking to his class, and half of those kids were talking about Gen Z, think the world used to be in black and white. (laughs) No kidding. No joke. The guy thought he was being punked. He went over to the next classroom, asked her students, same thing. (laughs) Can you believe that? (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) Used to be one channel and three channels and five channels. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And you had to get up and turn the knob. Exactly. That's on demand streaming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. color. It was always in color, of course. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) All right. So to get back on track, I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who would you say is your most respected competitor? Wow. Hmm. As a firm? Is that what you're... Yeah, it could be as a firm. It could be as specific as your role as... We have many uh, respected competitors in our space. Wow. Of other law firms, I think of oil and gas. I think of Benson and Elkins, Baker Botts. Oh, yeah. I know Baker Botts. Yeah. Yeah. Kirkland Ellis, probably in Houston. Those three. Those are big national, multinational firms, kind of like Womble. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of respect for them, the work they do, and the people there. In which cases, I mean, there are times where you have to work together with them anyway. Yes. Yes, there are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> either on the other side of the deal. I'd done a deal once. We were doing a you know, large acquisition and they hit an issue and the firm, the other side was represented by their traditional law firm. Uh-huh. I can't name the part. I could, right. but I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. The traditional law firm was out of California and they uh-huh. brought in a special counsel for this issue, Vincent and Elkins. And immediately there was rapport and I knew the attorney on the other side. And, you know, we had that trust factor and we got solved the problem quickly. I had extreme respect for him and vice versa. And we got the deal done. I like that. I like working with attorneys on the other side who are talented and experienced because something goes wrong, there's a worm or something arises, it's not going to throw them off. Right. And so I value that opportunity to work with somebody that 
also you know, talented and quite skilled because it's very, very helpful and very constructive and both parties, it's a win-win for both parties. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you say is your most important lesson learned throughout your entire career? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> most important lesson. That's a tough one, but I guess it's treat people well, I think. I think it pays off in the long run, no matter the circumstances, treat them well. And treat them well doesn't always mean warm and fuzzies or pay or anything like that. You can treat people well that way, but sometimes you have to be tough to treat somebody well. And and being tough with somebody, sometimes people will come back and say, I'm glad you stood firm there because I needed to hear that, those type of things. Yeah. I think... People can do well in a lot of different areas. And like I mentioned, I really have a lot of delight in seeing people do well and grow in their careers and their development. So treating people well really pays off in the long run. And that's what probably the most important lesson I've learned. I've seen other leaders do the same thing. They're patient. They even lose sleep at night over treating somebody well. And that's really impressive to me. Because in the end, I'm a firm believer, it comes back and pays off well for them in the end. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about being patient. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that patience is a virtue. Yeah, for sure. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the industry? Well, I think the industry is under change. It is such a fun time to be in the industry right now. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much change and so much focus on energy going on. It's really exciting, actually. I wake up and I think, wow, this is a great time because there's so much regulatory environment action going on with the government. Companies are changing and adapting. They're developing new technology. They're doing deals to help with the green transition They're trying to figure out, you know, it's not an easy issue and they're trying to figure out solutions that benefit their shareholders, the companies and their employees. And yet at the same time, you know, benefit the environment and society as a whole. So I think it's a great time and a great period to (laughs) to be involved in the industry. You know, it doesn't mean it's always easy. Nobody said anything was going to be easy or that work was always easy. But right. But it does mean that we're going to see change in this transition. and We should embrace it. You know, we should just say this is we're moving in a direction that's going to see change in our industry. But our industry is going to survive and it's going to do well and prosper as a result of us adapting and working with that change in a positive way. Which makes me laugh, and it's because this is the oil and gas industry, and they're so slow to change. Yes. So slow to change. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you now, there's still people putting, you know, their daily reports in Excel spreadsheets. Yes. You know? (laughs) But what a lot of people don't understand that in this industry, when, especially out in the field, you know, you do something wrong, someone dies. Right. That's right. And I think that's part of the culture is that we're so careful if it's not, yes. you know, broken, don't fix it because there could be something that could go Ramifications. wrong. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I deny that, but there's a lot of redundancy built into the systems in oil and gas industry for that Very reason, true. Both for safety and protection of the environment and those type of issues. So building in redundancy, those type of things are really critical for the industry. And so it is slow to change because it wants to take care and there's a lot of safety issues. Right. So very good point. Yeah. 
So, do you have a favorite podcast? <laughs> Yours. Is <laughs> <laughs> that the right answer? <laughs> <laughs> There's no right answer, honestly. <laughs> I mean, my favorite podcast is definitely not my own or my other one because <laughs> I don't even listen to myself. I was already here, so. <laughs> You listen to like any news or business stuff? I do. I'm a little bit of a news junkie, I guess. So, oh, same. Yeah. Those who know me, especially the oil and gas space, but or the energy space as a whole, I constantly listen to the Wall Street Journal, local city business journals, read the Bloomberg regularly, and the local papers, the Chronicle, and yeah, and often wherever if I travel and. I do travel quite a bit, but through work, but when I travel, I often like to read the local business journals and local papers to know what's going on in those cities and those areas as well. Too. See, I'm the same way about that, except, but I like to watch their local news. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I don't know what it is about that, but it just, I don't know, brings some sort of peace to me. Right. Right. Yeah. I was in, uh, it's probably off subject a little bit, but talking about local news, I was at a in Manchester, UK one time, and I turned on the local news, like you said, to catch up what's in Manchester, what's going on, and flipped through the channel, and there was this massive concert going on, one of the largest outdoor concerts I'd ever seen, and I just couldn't believe what was going on. It was live, and there was at least 100, 150,000 people there spread out all over the sideline, and I couldn't figure out who they were listening to. And finally, they zoomed in. It was Dolly Parton in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> That's unexpected. And they were dressed up in costumes. <laughs> it, was just, it was so funny. That's amazing. I mean, you can't hate Dolly. She's an icon. No. They give you the local news. <laughs> locally there in Manchester. That's fantastic. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for joining me, Jeffrey. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Womble Bond and Dickinson, how can they go about doing so? We have a website at www.wbd-us.com. And there's a lot of information about the firm. They definitely can call me or email me. My email address is jeffrey.whittle at wbd-us.com. I'm glad to share and talk about information in that way. You're welcome to call me. My phone number is posted there on the website. So glad to work with people if they want to find out more information. Perfect. And I'll also list your LinkedIn for them. Absolutely. Yeah, because everybody's all over that. Yes. Perfect. Well, thanks to Inveris for sponsoring the show. And just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.